Thank you for downloading this edition of Against the Odds. To find out more and to request to be a guest in an upcoming episode, visit the Against the Odds page of philip-anderson.co.uk. Welcome to Against the Odds, the bi-monthly motivational podcast profiling the lives of individuals who have conquered in the face of adversity. Produced and presented by Philip Francis Anderson. Hello. And a very warm welcome to episode two, part one of this two-part podcast, Smashing Blindness, with my guest Wayne Pugh, in which today I'm asking, what was the last mountain you climbed? Only you find us on the slopes of Ben Nevis, one of the tallest mountains in the British Isles, from where my guest draws one or two interesting parallels between the physical as well as the personal mountains he's conquered, both before and after losing his sight. A lot of bridges have been left destroyed with friendships that have gone wrong and people have left me because of losing my sight and I suppose don't understand the loss of sight and I suppose them friendships will be left broken. But all the bridges I've been able to cross and do something about it myself, I would say a lot of them have been challenged and done. With part of the challenge to raise £5,000 for the Guide Dogs Association. Once I'd made it public, I was going to climb Ben Nevis and set the page up for receiving the donations. Although in the back of my head, I kept on saying, You're not going to do it. Every day I woke up, the first thing I told myself was, You're going to smash Ben Nevis, you're going to do it. Losing his sight suddenly overnight at age 28 was to change Wayne's life forever. Such a fear hit you the second you lose your sight because it's how do I make a drink of tea? How do I get to the shop? How do I pick my clothes? How do you do the most smallest thing going? How do you hoover up? As did the onset of type 1 diabetes at age 12. It's not as easy as everyone thinks. You just change your diet. You have to count your carbs. You have to watch what you eat. You're always checking your blood sugars. I had to check my blood sugars four times a day. Not forgetting the road traffic accident that almost cost him his life when he was just eight years old. My dad actually said he could actually see blood coming from my head and hitting the wall six foot away. And as they were putting blood into me, it was coming straight out of me. Now though, as he reflects on these changes, On the physical and personal mountains he's conquered, Wayne endeavours his best to make sense of all that has happened. It's the one thing I hate asking for and that's help. And I know if I need help, I will ask for it. I always think if I've got to depend on someone, I can get let down. But if I can find a way in doing it myself, no one can ever let me down more. Smashing Blindness What? What'd you say? What'd you say? This is Vince, Wayne's six-and-a-half-year-old guide dog. The dog which was to change Wayne's life forever. Lie down. Oh. Uh, no, wait. 
The two of them have been together over four and a half years. A ready-made partnership, you could say. We've always had dogs in the family. I've always loved the animals that we've had, all the pets that we've had. I think dogs have always had somewhere in the heart. Vince? Here. Yet prior to getting Vince, Wayne seldom left the house. In fact, he never left his bedroom for the first two years of losing his sight. Two. Three. I felt lost. I didn't know which way to turn. I didn't know what to do. I suppose I'd lost everything. I'd lost the will. I'd lost the fight. I'd lost it all. Are you not running? What did you say? Yet it was all thanks to Wayne's older brother and the child's brotherly quarrel, which in time was to provide Wayne with the wake-up call he needed. I think the stress I was going through, knowing I got to do something with my own life instead of feeling like I was just existing. And I remember thinking to myself, I just need to speak to guide dogs and I need to get myself a dog and I need to start pushing now for my life. Wait. And not long after that, Wayne found himself on the waiting list for a guide dog. And not long after that, he was training with Vince. Whoops, wait. Is this what you're after? <laughs> eh? In training, I just kind of instantly felt like I could trust him with anything I did. Hi, I'm Siri. Choose the voice. Since then, Wayne has been assisting others with sight loss by teaching them the invaluable skills he's acquired, including the value of assistive technology. To learn more about what I can do, visit the Apple support site. Good boy! While shattering one or two commonly held misconceptions about guide dogs and their owners. As I was told when I got matched with Vince, you have a navigator and a pilot. It's a working partnership where you both work together. Does he take you to Tesco when you say? Um, no. <laughs> And in 2019, in recognition of all the love, joy and happiness Vince has brought into his life, Wayne decided to give something back to the charity, which he said has helped him in more ways than one. Exactly the reason what brought him to Scotland in the first place, and in particular, to the slopes of Ben Nevis. I wanted to raise money for guide dogs so I could name a guide dog after me very own guide dog, Vince. We decided to do Ben Nevis and I climbed two other mountains prior. I also set up donations pages and to face something that I decided to face instead of having challenges that have been picked for me, I guess. Which just goes to show, there really is life after blindness. The partnership's just 
grown and grown and grown, to be honest with you. And there'll be more mountain reflections and guide dog anecdotes later in the podcast. When was the last time you said yes to your children, then later regretted ever saying it? This is exactly what happened in Wayne's case. He recollects that perilous moment, the day when he had begged his parents to let he and his older brother walk to school together without them. He ate, his brother ten. The two were looking forward to participating in the school's first ever swimming gala, and so thought it the grown-up thing to do, to arrive en masse, minus their parents. But fate had other ideas, and Wayne never made it into school that day, and so never got to find out how he would have fared in the school swimming gala. The two were attempting to cross the main road just round the corner from where they lived, when Wayne was suddenly struck by an oncoming car and dragged 300 metres up the road onto the terrified gaze of his 10-year-old brother. Me head got stuck in the left-hand side of the suspension of the car. I wrapped my legs around the exhaust, ended up with all beans all over my feet. It was an insane experience. I'll never forget feeling... Scared, panic, because I was awake at all the time. I never passed out or anything. I was conscious all the way. I remember feeling like I was being lifted from under the car. And finding out years later, it was actually a lorry driver and he picked the front end of the car up and I dropped. I actually pulled myself out from underneath the car and ripped all my knuckles open on my hands to get myself from under the car. My head was actually scalped. My left ear was, was ripped away. I ended up with 567 stitches on the left-hand side of my head. It was a a very traumatic experience for my brother who witnessed it happen, as well as both of my parents and my other brother who, who wasn't there at the time. I know at one point that my dad got into the hospital, they actually said to my dad that they didn't think I was going to survive. My dad actually said he could actually see blood coming from my head and hitting the wall six foot away. And as they were putting blood into me, it was coming straight out of me. I ended up in a, I think it was a 12-hour operation that day. I know my mum and dad walked the corridors in Newcastle Hospital. They never left the hospital until the operation was over. I can't imagine what was going through the head at the time. Because they took both of them to a a room and told them that they didn't think I was going to survive at all. I believe brain damage was mentioned, but they didn't know what would actually come from it. I had a skin graft taken from my leg. And that was stitched to the side of my head. The only way I can explain it, it was like a V shape on the side of my head, just above my left ear. My ear was put back where it was meant to be. 
it was it was a huge huge trauma. I was in intensive care for eighteen months. I think I had three major operations, and then I had to have a balloon put in the side of my head because one of the doctors wanted to make me my head look as good as it possibly could due to the trauma that had happened. So they actually put a balloon underneath the skin and I had a valve behind my left ear and they'd inject something into it. Now, I think it was saline, but I'm not certain. But they injected something into it to make the balloon stretch, which would then stretch the skin on my head. I was always having headaches and just feeling extremely drained because of everything. It was it was horrible. Thankfully, I got such parents that were there all the time. As soon as I'd had the, I think it was the first three major operations that I had, I was left with a tube coming out the side of my head. And I had like a the size of a CD, but most probably 50 CDs deep. And it used to just take blood off my head. Like I can remember, they used to say to my parents, he can't go anywhere because he's got that. I said to one of the nurses, I was like, he are then. I took my shirt off, put it down my pants. <laughs> and I was like, they are, tie it and wear my shorts off. Mm. <laughs> I can go around now, I'll be all right. <laughs> that was a sign of you getting better by the sounds, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I suppose at that young age, I never really understood how serious it was. I never understood the pain that my mum and dad were going through because it was never shown to me. In all honesty, I never saw them crying. I never saw them upset. I know, I know it happened, but they never did it in front of me. So I never saw them crumble. To this day, I, I'll never know why I come out walking, talking, laughing, smiling. I do know I'd always thank the NHS and the doctor who did my last operation, Dr. Skrivastava, because I think to myself, if it wasn't for the NHS and Dr. Skrivastava, who knows where I'd be today. I don't know if I believe in God, but I do know through everything I've ever gone through, I've always had my granddad in my head. He was such a strong person. Someone you could look up to. Someone who, who I did look up to from such an, an early age. Even to this day now, I carry one of his war medals with me everywhere I go. I'm, I'm told by my family that I'm a lot like my great-granddad. He was a police officer. Nobody could say no to him kind of thing because he was that strong and that confident and that outgoing. And people say now that I'm so much like him. Regrettably, and despite numerous attempts, Wayne never received proper closure. The driver of the car, a woman, a member of the British Constabulary, was never brought to justice, and Wayne was left with a lifetime of mental and physical scars. We provisions for climbing Ben Nevis. I did go and shop at a shop in Trenton Gardens called Rohan. 
I remember asking on the guard dog's coffee lounge, which is a group on Facebook, what was a good waterproof coat because I'll get out in any weather. And someone said to me, look for Rohan, you won't go far wrong. I spoke to the manager at the shop called Ian, told him what I was going to do and asked him what I would need. Now, I was told I'd need some really good boots. I was told I'd need some summit trousers which are warm trousers that have got zips on the pockets. And if you get too hot, you open the zips up and they've got netting on the inside of the pockets, which let the heat out. And if you're cold, you can zip them up to warm you up and they're waterproof as well. And I wore a base layer, which is a merino wool top that was long sleeved, a neck warmer. That was good for pull up over my face. I think I wore it on the head mostly. And Rohan actually donated to me a coat with a value of £400. And I was free to take that with me. The one thing was I got to take a photo at the top of Ben Nevis wearing the Rohan jacket. parent ever likes to see their child suffer, let alone be diagnosed with a life-limiting condition, as in the case of my guest, Wayne Pugh, who was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 12, a condition which is said to affect 400,000 in the UK alone every year, of which 29,000 of them are children. A debilitating disease, one which was to adversely affect Wayne's life in the years ahead. I can't remember where we were on holiday, but we'd gone away somewhere in a caravan and I'd just become really, really ill and i got no energy to do anything at all. From what I can remember, I was fine when we went on the holiday and I know we should have done two weeks on the holiday and I think we only did a week. Me mum and dad thought they were doing the correct thing and they were spoiling me with lollipops, sweets, try and give me loads of energy to get me go out. Sadly, my mum and dad actually thought I'd got leukaemia or cancer with how much weight I was losing at the time, how ill I was, how I never wanted to leave the, the bed at all. I was always tired and everything. Well, we were driving home. I remember saying to my dad, I needed, needed a wee. So my dad pulled over at the service station and he's like, right, you get out the car, run in and then come back to us. And I remember opening the door, putting my feet on the floor and I just collapsed. I couldn't hold my own body weight. So my dad and my brother had to carry me into the toilets then. They contacted the doctor on the way home and the doctor come up and I did the pee test. And the doctor told my parents to take me straight up to the hospital because I was diabetic. I had type 1 diabetes and for the first few years, I used to do two injections a day. Now, I, I did go through, I'd say a lot of issues while at school with diabetes. There was times where I refused to take it and I smashed my insulin pens because I just wanted to be normal like everyone else. It was a very hard thing to understand why I couldn't eat sweets, why I wasn't allowed certain drinks, and I believe I was the only child in school with it. 
none of my teachers understood it. I got teachers that used to send me out of the class because I got to eat in their lesson. And I felt like I was being punished because I got to eat in at a certain time. I don't blame them for that because years ago it wasn't as well known of as it is today. Not everyone understands the situation you're going through unless they're living it themselves. Yes, on many occasions it was it was fed to the school, but as I say, it fell on deaf ears. It took over at the beginning. It's not as easy as everyone thinks. You just change your diet. You have to count your carbs. You have to watch what you eat. You've, you're always checking your blood sugars. I had to check my blood sugars four times a day. Your fingers are sore. The red raw because you're always getting blood from them. It was horrible. I did get into routine, but with my diabetes being so aggressive, I ended up on four injections a day. I remember one of the head doctors at the hospital had me in. His name was Dr. Scarpallo. Said to me, Mum and Dad, there's a way Wayne's in taking sugar into his body somehow. At 12 years old, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand that I can't have sugar or anything like that. So me, my family were being quite strict with me and there was no chance I could get hold of any or anything like that. My mum and dad argued that fact with the doctor and the doctor said, well, we'll have to do a test. I don't know what it, what the test was because we're going back quite a long time ago. But what it was, he did this test and they actually found out I've got this rare condition with diabetes or something. And it, it just left my diabetes uncontrollable. One moment, my blood sugars could be through the roof. The next minute, they could be on the floor. All I can say is the amount of times I've woke up with ambulance people around me, paramedics, is unreal. Because one minute I'd be fine, the next minute I'd be gone. Even harder, I suppose, because I don't get to see myself in them positions, but families... Friends do. I kind of feel for him, but it wasn't something I was doing on purpose at the time. It was because the diabetes was so aggressive. How did it pan out, Wayne? Not not brilliant, to be honest with you. I did end up in hospital every other day, an ambulance out every night of the week. My brother actually one day coming from been at work and found me in bed fitting with a diabetic fit because my blood sugars have actually gone below one and they do say anything below one can starve your brain and he, he saved my life my kidneys were slowly dying basically I remember being in a friend's house and she said to me one night she said oh your legs look like chunky at the bottom I used to live in a pair of shorts all the time and I changed and started wearing tracksuit bottoms and I'd lift my socks up as much as I could so people couldn't see my ankles. And I didn't realise that my body was actually filling up with fluid and I was kind of drowning on the inside because my kidneys weren't actually passing out the fluids or the toxins because they were, they were losing the functions day by day. I was rushed into hospital after a diabetic fit I was put on a fair few machines and 
I was told by the doctor that come and spoke to me that my kidneys were shutting down, but so were most of my organs in my body as well. The doctor actually said to me, he believed I'd got less than four days to live if I didn't go on to kidney dialysis, which would help the kidneys, which would then help the other organs to push me on. One of the hardest things I've ever had to put forward to my family because at the time when the doctor told me, I said, can I tell my family? Because I don't think it's right for anyone else to tell them this kind of information. I remember doing it and telling a joke afterwards, even though it wasn't funny and it was most probably one of the hardest things to tell your family. I didn't want them to see me weak at the time and that's something I wouldn't let them do. I was told I was in desperate need of a kidney transplant and on the day that I told my family that I got basically days to live both my brothers and my dad actually said that they'd give me one of their kidneys my idea was because at that time in my life with everything being so bad just let me go I'll never forget my brother Craig he texted me one night and he said to me, if it was me in your position, would you want me to have your kidney? And with me having just hugely massive family bonds, I know if it meant I'd got died to keep one of my family alive, I'd do it tomorrow. So he got me. <laughs> he went for the test and he was an identical match. The skin type, Everything was identical, bar one thing. And that was feasible by medication. And you're just going to have to wait for part two of this two-part podcast to find out the results of that kidney transplant, including another more serious transplant, which was to carry only a 35% chance of survival. Every day I woke up, the first thing I told myself was, you're going to smash Ben Nevis, you're going to do it. The positive mindset in it was, I'm going to do it. And I'd say that's something that we all need to do, to be honest with you. If you can believe in yourself and tell yourself these little things. I always say to people, the first thing for me after losing my sight, my confidence was to start loving me and start believing in me again. And someone used to say, I've got a really nice smile. And that was the one thing I started building on. I've got a nice smile. Every day I'd tell myself that. And then I went on and on. But talking about Ben Nevis, yeah, very scary. I didn't think I'd have the energy to do it. I didn't think I'd got the stamina to do it. I just didn't believe I was going to do it. But I had got 4,000 reasons why I got to do it. And why I couldn't turn around and say, I can't do that. Now, how many of you are either living with or know someone who has sight loss? Well, it may surprise you to know there are roughly 2 million living with sight loss in the UK alone, of which 360,000 are either blind or partially sighted. And in speaking with one of my employees some years ago, she said one of her biggest fears was losing her sight. And I think you'll find She's not alone. But what of those who lose their sight and are told their condition is untreatable? 
Doubtless coming to terms with it is no mean feat. As in the case of my guest, Wayne Pugh, whom at the age of 28 went from having full sight to no sight in the twinkling of an eye. You may find certain elements of this interview distressing. I'd been out with my family the night before. I drove and everything was fine. I woke up, I believed it was the morning, to my brother waking me up, asking me if I was going to get up today. I said to him, I said, it isn't light yet though. I said, it's still dark. And he was like, it's dinner time, Wayne. And I think instantly it hit me. It uh, definitely shocked me to have nothing. Life just felt like it had gone. The life I'd lived, the life of driving a car, being able to be the boy I was at the time. My mum used to tell everyone that she believes I lived my life at 150 mile an hour and I've lived three lives in one. Do you agree with her? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I was just extremely fast-paced. I thrilled off life. I loved the car scene. I was into your loud music, fast motorbikes, just getting out there and living life as much as you possibly could. Were you one of these ones who would turn up at, say, Tesco or Asda's car park of an evening or the festival park in Stoke-on-Trent with your new car or newish car? (laughs) I definitely was. I do actually remember, Philip, buying my first brand new ever car. I brought a Renault Clio. And the day I brought it, I lowered it on some suspension springs and I put a base box in the back. I definitely was one of the boy racers. <laughs> the, the idea of me losing my sight, I didn't just lose my sight. I, I lost the partner I was with. I lost my car. I lost friends. I lost everything I'd ever known. I lost my job because I, I couldn't physically do anything. I lost absolutely everything and anyone who knew me to lose my car and I wouldn't like to put one thing first and say that's the impact but my car was my freedom and it's one thing I've always strived for, my independence, the key to that life. So to not be able to get in that every day and take myself where I wanted to, it just destroyed me. Losing your sight, you lose being able to do what you want when you want. You lose being able to pick your phone up and just use it, turn the TV on and watch the TV. I couldn't pick my own clothes out. I just felt like I'd lost not just my sight, I'd lost me. I was told when I was younger by the nurses in the hospital when I was diagnosed as diabetic that you could lose limbs, but I don't believe anyone ever mentioned losing your sight. If I had been told about it, I suppose as a child, you never think it's going to happen to you and you, you, you live life as untouchable. When you first discovered you'd lost your sight, the shock doesn't even bear thinking about no, I suppose all I can say is that I turned into the shell of a man because I didn't know what was next. I felt lost. I didn't know which way to turn. I didn't know what to do. I suppose I'd lost everything. I'd lost the will. 
I'd lost the fight. I'd lost it all. Did you want to give up? Yeah, yeah. Many occasions, the thoughts went through my mind. Well, it's not that I don't think I could. I know I couldn't. Life's too precious and I love it too much. How long did you end up feeling like this shell of a man? Being honest, most probably about five years. I didn't leave my bedroom. I never went out the house. I never spoke to anyone on the phone. It was just me on my own doing nothing. Just thinking about the next day and the next day and the next day. What was getting you through that dark spell? It was the thought of having my nephew at the weekends. Your nephew? My nephew. My nephew, Jordan. He was six. And why was that significant for you? He's he's a child and it's, it's growth and he was helping me through my nightmare. Just by being himself, unconditional love, there was a huge bond between us before losing my sight. So when I could drive, I was, I, I'd go pick him up for no reason and I'd take him out. And once the sight had gone, he was like that shining light, or should I say guiding light for me. He was the main reason that I actually got out with the cane. And at six years old, he was guiding me around Stoke-on-Trent with it. And I never wanted failing. So when he wasn't with me, I'd push myself to do a short walk with the cane. So when he come back, he'd, he'd say to me, I can tell you've been out with it because I was getting slightly better. But what he didn't know is I'd only walked to the end of the road and back with it because I got no confidence in going out to the street. But when he was there... I'd walk Staffordshire with him. Oh. I'd say more than anything, he pushed me because he'd wake me up in the morning and he'd be like, are we going out? He wanted me to get out with that cave. And I think the more he wanted me to get out with it, the more I wanted to. What a lovely bond. Do you still have that bond with him? I don't see him as much now because he's 16 now. Um, But every time I see him, he chucks his arms around me and tells me he loves me. And it means the world to me. It does. But in terms of you wanting to take that initial step out of your room, can you remember when that was and what you did? I had an argument with my elder brother for nothing. (laughs) It was something totally stupid. It wasn't anything serious. I think the stress I was going through, knowing I got to do something with my own life instead of feeling like I was just existing. And I remember thinking to myself, I just need to speak to guide dogs and I need to get myself a dog and I need to start pushing now for my life. I remember getting home, ran guide dogs, and I got my name down for someone to come out and see me. And um, that was the ball that was rolling as soon as they come out to see me. She wanted to see me with my cane. And as I said to her, the, the cane just props my bedroom door open and that's it. 
<laughs> so, uh, did you find the cane quite daunting then, as a uh, as a sort of a mobility aid? Then, did you find that drew a lot more untoward attention to you when you first went out with that? I think mentally, it made me feel weak. It just made me feel like, what's the point? I believe I had the cane for about three years and never used it once. It wasn't something that I wanted at all. It really wasn't. I wanted a dog by my side. I wanted a guide dog, but I suppose wanting a guide dog and actually knowing what they were doing were two different things because I'd never seen a guide dog. I knew nothing at all about them. And just how Wayne adjusted to his new way of life after losing his sight and all that the rehabilitation involved will be discussed in part two. Walking up Ben Nevis, I come to a, a, a bridge and I was amazed that the bridge was even on Ben Nevis and it went over a little stream. While crossing that bridge, I was held back and thought to myself about the bridges I'd climbed in life and about what things that I'd had to achieve to cross them bridges. Now, a lot of bridges have been left destroyed with friendships that have gone wrong and people have left me because of losing my sight and I suppose don't understand the loss of sight and I suppose them friendships will be left broken. But all the bridges I've been able to cross and do something about it myself, I would say a lot of them have been challenged and done because that's who I am. I want to keep challenging myself and keep crossing them bridges. Well, that's just about it for part one of this two-part podcast. Do join me for part two when there'll be more on Wayne's life-threatening transplants. Mine had got to the actual point. I've got a matter of months with my brother's kidney. His legacy track. And his guide dog fundraising campaign. And whether he made it to the top of Ben Nevis. Each person who climbed with me, they all said, you're working three times as hard as we all are. And a special thank you to all of you who have got in touch regarding the initial podcast back in April, Life After Prematurity. To judge by all your comments, it's likely we'll be revisiting that topic in the not-too-distant future. Thank you very much indeed. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and don't forget to recommend a friend. In the meantime, stay safe, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of Against the Odds, the motivational podcast celebrating the lives of those who have conquered in the face of adversity. Produced and presented by Philip Francis Anderson. Whether you have a story of your own to share or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, email ifl at philip-anderson.co.uk or visit the Against the Odds page on the philip-anderson.co.uk website for more information and to complete the guest interviewee questionnaire. 
This podcast is the property of Philip Francis Anderson. All rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the contents in any form is prohibited other than the following. We welcome you to download and play the podcast and share with others for personal use. Please acknowledge Against the Odds podcast as the source of the material. You may not, except with our express written permission, distribute or commercially exploit the content.